Welcome back, everybody, to the Roses and Rhetoric Podcast. As always, I am your host, Jimmy Hackett, and with me, my charming co-host, Joseph Stanford. All right. Who joined us last episode? We had a very interesting conversation with Kenzie Quick, a longtime friend of Joseph and myself. She shared with us an amazing story that you can find on Harness magazine and also on our own website of rosesandrhetoric.com where you will also see the response piece written by our very own joseph stanford joe did you want to have any closing thoughts on that uh, episode last week uh i'm i'm real happy with how it turned out i've got a lot of positive feedback from people who listened to it and um the biggest thing is i'm glad i'm glad that we were able to have that conversation with her and that it ended up being so conflict-free and uh just an overall elegant conversation I couldn't agree more. It was very elegant and very conflict-free. Um, I only hope that both of you will take your studies in chemistry a little bit more seriously before <laughs> her next visit. So as Kinsey mentioned, she is in the process right now of writing a, a longer story, uh, which contains parts of the one that she shared last week. So we wish Kinsey the best of luck on that endeavor. Uh, writing is by, by no means an easy uh, feat. And so uh, we wish her the best of luck. And when that is uh, finished, we would hope to have her back on the podcast to discuss it. Uh, and also more discussion on the writing process, something that Joseph and myself have a lot of interest in. But I think that brings that episode last week to a close. And one of the things that we wanted to move on and discuss with this podcast is a topic that both Joseph and myself take very seriously, which is not only trying to read a large variety of books, but more importantly, trying to see how those books connect to one another even in topics that may not be readily comparable or, or uh, readily synthesized, we want to take that effort, especially on this space within this podcast, of, of trying to do that. And so today, we thought we might discuss uh, three books that both Joe and myself find uh, interesting and, and important. Um, those books are, one, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. The second is Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. And the third being a Rose's Rhetoric favorite, Loser Think by Scott Adams. Our only complaint, I will say, with, with Loser Think is that he didn't call it Winner Think, which I think Joe and myself both think would have been a, a little uh, more productive title, uh, maybe for some reasons of Persuasion that we will get into. Okay, so you were talking about Anti-Fragility, the book by Nassim Tlaib. I haven't read this book, but I did do a little bit of Googling on the book and to see what it was about. And it defined anti-fragility as a system that not only resists change, but it actually gets better from, from unexpected changes. Right. So, and this is, this is different. There's a distinction between this and robustness or resilience, because resilience just kind of implies that it fares the weather, it fares the changes. But anti-fragile seems like it describes an entirely new concept. Um, do, do you want to elaborate further on that? Yeah, and that's a really good point. So there's three broad categories for a system response inside of the book. The first is, which is, as you mentioned, robustness, the idea that this system doesn't change really either either for the better or the worse from unexpected consequences. That would be a, a very much a system that just always maintains the status quo. The second would be a system that is fragile, which is a system that under small changes may be quite robust, but under larger unexpected changes, all of a sudden falls apart. 
a good example of a system that would be fragile would be you know, probably one that comes to mind when I say the word fragile would be the idea of a cup breaking. This is an example that Nassim gives in, in, in the book. The idea that if you have a, a coffee mug sitting on the edge of the table, that coffee mug is in a fragile position because even if the odds are low that somebody's going to bump into the table and knock the glass over, once it happens, the cup is destroyed. And so a more robust situation would be if that cup were placed in the center of the table where no one's going to run into a table and knock a cup over if it's in the middle. And then an even better cup, one that I don't know how you would design, but one that would be anti-fragile, would be a cup that, if dropped, actually became stronger. And so mm. those, and so the, the idea with discussing things in terms of anti-fragility is the idea that it's very hard in life to make predictions. And so rather than making predictions, what can you make, what, what comment can you make about a system with present information that will describe how it will, be, how it will behave in the future without having any special knowledge of the future? And so the, the idea is to take a conversation about the future, transport it to the present without having to guess the future and discuss the system. And so we can observe a system's fragility without ever having to make an accurate future prediction by just knowing properties of the system itself. And to me, that is the real power of, of this book is that framework of how can you prepare yourself for a future that is largely unknowable? And that I think directly ties into some of the work that we hear from Scott Adams, which he brings up the idea of A-B testing and anti-fragility. We hear Nassim talk about the idea of tinkering being better than trying to operate from first principles or from theory. Scott Adams has this idea of a talent stack, the idea that every time you add a talent to something that you're able to do, every time you develop a new skill, you more than add on to your ability or your odds of success, you multiply your odds of success. That would be an example of something that's anti-fragile. The idea that each time you add on something new, even though you don't know what it will do for you in the long run, it's you're, you're opening up options. And that's also a key point in Asim's book on anti-fragility is the idea of options, that give yourself options in life. And so that I think is, is probably the most, the most um, immediate connection to Scott Adams is the idea of A-B testing and the idea of purposefully exposing yourself to situations that you will fail at, but coming out better the other side, which brings us to another one of Scott Adams' books, which is How to Fail and Still Win Big. I will put an asterisk there and say, I don't really know if that is the title of the book. I've heard this book discussed many times. <laughs> I've read it myself. I don't remember what the title actually is, but if you Google something along the lines of How to Fail and Still Win Big, you will find a, a book on Scott Adams largely about systems and why systems are better than goals. And the reason is because they, you expose yourself to small failures that really don't matter that much, at the same time exposing yourself to just huge, huge upsides. Okay. So talking about anti-fragility, the first thing that came to my mind was the, the future, like you said, isn't predictable, but there are certain characteristics of the future that will more often than not take place. Like for example, there's always going to be volatility in the markets. Right. To, to expect the markets to be consistent and stay where they're at is, that's an unprecedented assumption. Right. So it, it makes sense from that point that you would want to design a system that takes advantage of the volatility of the market and that leverages that to your advantage. Yes, and absolutely. Is that, is, does he talk about that at all? Yeah, that's a really good point. So you're, you're absolutely right. You, 
the market is largely going to be volatile. And even when, when we observe what appear to be long-term trends, there's no reason to think that that trend will necessarily continue. And in fact, if you look at, let's just say the, the stock price of the S&P 500, while it does generally grow over time, you also see in it these massive drops and these massive jumps. And so that, that ties into one of Nassim's earlier works on the black swan, the idea that these large, unprecedented, impossible to predict phenomena are extremely important in understanding how the future uh, came from the past. That is to say, how, how things evolved. That we, we tend to um, put in place this narrative of slow, steady change when in fact history is, is full of examples where very quick, uh, very quick abrupt changes happened uh, instead. And so one of the examples he gives in Anti-Fragile, which I thought was, was, was really nice, is in this going back to the idea of an option, he gives the idea or he gives the example of, of a person in, uh, in it was either ancient Greece or ancient Rome. And it was actually an example that was described by Aristotle. And what this person did in ancient Greece is they went around all of the different olive presses. These are things that you use to make olive oil. And this person just rented out a, a large number of oil presses. And that had with it a fixed cost. It's going to cost a certain number of dollars to rent or to, to, to put a hold on, uh, let's say, 10 olive presses. So you have, you have that cost. You have the, the cost of renting out 10 oil presses. But you're at the same time exposing yourself to potentially massive upsides because if there is such a rush uh, for oil presses and you, there's a huge demand for oil, for olive oil, then you have the ability for making many times more of that money that you put for that initial investment. And so he gives this as an, as an idea or kind of a, um, an, an example of, of an option where you have a fixed downside cost with large upside cost. And the, the, the more um, social or the more practical point of the book is to try to find these situations in your life where you can, where you can expose yourself to fixed understood downside cost, but at the same time, exposing yourself to large upsides. And at, the, and at the same time, the converse, avoiding the opposite, which is to say, avoid situations where you have a fixed gain, but unimaginable downside. And probably so, the best example so from of that a, would be drinking and driving. Okay. Yeah. The, give the drinking and driving excuse, but, or example, but what are, what are some like pragmatic pieces of investing advice that can be applied from this? Sure. So, one of the things that I, that I try to do now and that I didn't do much earlier in my life, and I, I think it's one that we touched on on the first podcast, is just the idea of, of trying to eat more healthy than I was before. Um, eating a lot of sugar and eating just generally unhealthy is exposing me to a variety of downsides. Eating unhealthy is linked with, you know, with heart disease and other illnesses that are really, if you, if you take the value of my life to be you know, a, a huge price to pay, then I'm gaining small benefit, you know, uh, eating, you know, a piece of candy or something, or, you know, eating a lot of sugar, but at the same time, exposing myself to huge downsides. And I'm not really gaining much from that. The other one would be, you know, an example that I, that I would give would be something like uh, lifting weights or exercising where there's, there's a fixed cost with that. It does take time to go to the gym. It does take time to our money to pay a gym membership, but there's so many benefits of, of being healthy that, that that to me is really an example of anti-fragility. And also the idea of using free weights, the idea that using your, your stabilizing muscles to, con to, to control the weight versus just a very you know, sterile 
a gym machine. This is something that he talks about in the book as well. The benefits of free weights over gym machines is the idea that you're, you're benefiting from, from the small variations in the lift as you're working to control the weight on the way up and on the way down. So mm-hmm. those, those are, those are two that, that come to mind right away. Um, it's harder for me to give, you know, a specific investing advice. Certainly Nassim, you know, he kind of uh, cut his teeth in, in, in the financial world. He was a uh, derivatives trader. So he does have more technical books. I described that. Those are all above my head. But as far as you know, things from a, from a practical level, I would also just add one more, which would be reading and exposing yourself to information. He has a quote that information is anti-fragile, that it benefits um, from, from, from anti-fragility. And I think that that's just on a personal level. It's learning something new has a, a, a fixed cost. You know, maybe I put a couple hours into learning something, but who knows what positive benefit that will have for me later on down the road. You know, I think of, you know, one of the like funniest things in my, I, I think of from college is that probably the, the, the skill that I learned in college that's been the most useful to me in, in my career so far has just been learning how to use VBA in Excel. I mean, and I would have never thought that in the, you know, What's the four VBA? years. Of, so VBA is kind of the uh, scripting uh, language that's used inside of Microsoft Excel. Um, it's kind of a, a, a program language built into those spreadsheets and, you know, I use it a few times in class. I didn't think much of it. Lo and behold, it's been this, you know, beneficial thing to me to have in my life and in my career. I would never have thought that, but uh, this is how it turns out. So again, you, you can't predict the future, but you can uh, build skills and, and develop yourself so that whatever life throws your way, you're able to take advantage of it. Yeah, set up a, a solid foundation. Solid foundation, or as Scott Adams would call it, a talent stack. Okay, and speaking of, speaking of talents and talent stacks, I know that, a lot of people advocate having persuasion as a talent. Absolutely. What, how would you define persuasion? Yeah, persuasion and then, you know, persuasion and how the two play together. So important. Definitely a, a skill set that I would not have taken seriously maybe four years ago, you know, maybe longer. Um, I just wouldn't have thought that it was necessary to learn skills about how to get people to be receptive to your ideas. And the way that I would describe persuasion is it, it's not, it's not a, just as simple as getting people to, to say yes. It's, it's more about getting people to be receptive to what you're trying to tell them. And that, that kind of gets into the realm of, of persuasion. How do you set the stage to make a convincing argument to somebody else? And there's several principles that go into making a, a persuasive speech. And even on the front end of that, there's many more principles of, of how to be persuasive, how to set that stage properly. But getting people to be receptive to your ideas is so important, especially in what we're in now, which is this social media, this ideas-based economy. If you're, the, the odds of your idea being substantially better than someone else's, possible, but there's a lot of people in the world. I don't know how likely that probably is. On the other hand, if you add a good idea plus persuasion plus persuasion, I think you have a powerful package coming your way. I would say as a, as a counter to, or as a follow-up to that point, persuasion is also important to know from a defensive tactic so that you can understand when people are trying to influence your decision-making, which is happening all mm-hmm. the time with marketing and even just in personal conversation. This is happening all the time. But that's, that's broadly how I, would, how I would define persuasion, how I would define persuasion, and absolutely an important talent to have uh, moving forward. Yeah, I like how you said that, that one of the, the biggest benefits of, 
of our understanding persuasion is being able to defend yourself against other people when they use it against you. And I would extend that even further that it's good to understand persuasion because it protects you from yourself when your mind tries to play sure. tricks on you. So if I could, I have some, some notes here that I wrote down about sure. self-limitation. So I, I realized that all the limitations in my life are put there by myself. I know I have all the physical and mental prerequisite tools for success. And I'd argue that most of us do. And when I say success, I mean the achieving of one's goals. Um, the problem is that we easily fall for our illusions of our minds and the mind and the illusions that they manufacture. So an example of this was I was seated at a table at a bar this weekend when I saw a cute girl walk by. My mind had me convinced that she was out of my league and not to try to bother to get her attention. My state and self-confidence crashed. Then out of nowhere, an even cuter girl came by and tapped me on the shoulder and said, hi, my friend dared me to come kiss you. Suddenly I couldn't see through my previously held illusion of that night. It disappeared. I was embarrassed by the whimsical transient nature of my confidence. How could something so essential to my being be reversed in just a few seconds? I've been trying to develop awareness and courage in these situations. Awareness of when the mind is fooling me and the courage to fend off the seductive quality of falling for the illusion. Believing the illusions is the easiest option. It requires no effort. Defying the illusion is hard. It requires suffering and vulnerability. Places the mind usually tries to avoid. And I think that's a big part of persuasion is, is, is the avoidance of uncomfortable feelings. Like the mind will give any, any reason that it can to avoid those types of things. And that's what Scott Adams talks about the fake because like, we don't really need good logical reasons to, to believe certain things. We just need some kind of half-baked train of thinking that connects the two dots together, even though it right. might not be logical or reasonable at all. Right. Right. And, and to go a little bit further on that, I also saw a similar mechanism in a different setting as well, which is when chasing new ideas. So the mind decays ideas over time, um, especially if they are ideas that require action in order for them to manifest themselves in the world. Like how many times have you been super excited to do something? You know, maybe it's a fresh idea you just had or an idea that someone just told you. And a few days later, if not hours later, you, you find the idea utterly repulsive. You might even be embarrassed for previously being excited about it. And it's like the idea came to you as an idea in its pure form, like straight from the quote unquote divine. And it came stocked with its own fuel for action. But the more you think about that idea, the more your mind starts to attack it and drain its fuel reserves until the idea withers and dies and effectively ends up poisoning your mind's reservoir of self-confidence. So one takeaway is I've been trying to act quicker on new ideas that I get. Yeah, absolutely. Because when they first come, they're fresh, they feel good. It's easy to take action. But even just a few hours later, you, you never know. It could it could just be gone. There's no more motivation to chase it. Yeah. Have you seen yeah. something like that in your own life? I I love that. I love both those examples, and I love the broader point you're making. And let me just tie this back into uh, another idea in anti fragile that I think is just so spot on. And it, it's it's an idea that comes from the venture capital world, and the idea is that you don't invest in the idea, you invest in the person. And as individuals, we should be doing that more. If we believe in ourselves, look, every, every day, every person has a thousand just 
really stupid ideas. It doesn't matter because beforehand, you don't know what ideas are actually stupid. You just don't because you have no way of knowing how a billion people will, will respond to whatever it is that you're doing or saying. And so the idea that you actually know beforehand what idea is good or bad is absolutely ridiculous. You have no idea. We should all be taking more risk. And, and that, absolutely that goes for myself. Um, I mean, I'll just mention this podcast. I mean, you had to convince me that we should do this. I mean, I, I, I remember resisting it, thinking, oh, well, what about this? What about that? In the end, that was just loser thing. In the end, it was just not being willing to take a risk. And for what reason? I, I have no idea how this will turn out, but it, it would be silly for me to pretend that I do. And I really like Scott Adams. So he has the fake because, but I like, I like his other one too, the idea of the laundry list. That if somebody asks you to do something and you and you say no and you give twenty reasons why that you probably don't have any good ones that if you really did you just pick the one good yeah. one I, I love that one I, I think that one I see that one all the time I see it in myself that's one that's super uh, super common I but, think but the question I have about that one is that sure when someone gives a multitude of reasons for not wanting to do something it means that they're probably making it up but does that method act as effective persuasion like is it effective right. to when you're trying to convince someone of something to laundry list out the reasons instead of just dialing in on one or two yeah i don't know that's a good question i think it would depend on how familiar somebody was with someone like uh cialdini or scott adams and, and how kind of on the lookout you are for it i mean i would just say for myself which is the majority of people are not <laughs> no no like of course no absolutely i mean for most people, if you give multiple reasons why, it will seem like you're strengthening the argument, right? Like just from like a pure logic point of view, this is why logic by itself isn't enough. You have to understand persuasion. You just have to, because you are a victim of persuasion unless you understand it. And this is especially true when it comes to, to kind of a, a, a naive logic approach to any argument that if you have, you know, 30 reasons for not doing something, well, Surely that means that that's a better argument than only having one or two. And it absolutely would be if all 30 were really strong arguments. But the odds are that they are not and that someone's just trying to rapidly fire a whole bunch of ideas at you to try to shut down a conversation. In fact, I, th this is, a, this is a, a tactic that is used in high school debate clubs where they call it uh, running a spread. And the idea with a spread is that you list as many reasons for something as possible with the hope that your opponent doesn't mention one of them in their rebuttal. And then the next round, you get to kind of push that argument on to the next phase of the debate. I mean, it's one of the many reasons mm -hmm. why I really don't value high school debate that much. I, I did it myself. I, I don't think I gained that much from it because in real life, debating isn't a game. And in real life, there's no singular referee who has been trained in debate. It's a whole bunch of people listening. It's an audience or it's an individual. But odds are in a real life debate, you're going to have high emotions, high persuasion, whether you mean to or not, and probably not that much logic going on if we're being honest. And so the tactics that you would use in a, in a formal debate, quote unquote, are not going to be that applicable for, for real life. And whether or not that's good or bad, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think it's the case that, that they will be that applicable to real life. Yeah, I like that idea of how you can't use logic to persuade yourself or to persuade your own mind to do certain things, which kind of begs the the question can you use emotion to do that and i think you can yeah and i think that the stoics talked about this they talk about a stoic virtue of courage yeah yeah and i think that i can i think that courage is effective because it presents a non-logical defense to the ego um the ego like most humans isn't 
easily persuaded by logic and reason. And that's why it's easy for someone to live in perpetually in their own paradigms. And what courage does is it allows you to negotiate with the ego from a different angle, an angle it's not used to, a more effective angle. Um, you're not reasoning with it at this point. You're persuading it with emotion. And I think that's the case because to be courageous implies that you have a feeling of nobility behind it, like some higher value, some more principled force that's backing it up. And that once you can convince your ego that you're a courageous person, exercising courage in the face of fear and doubt then starts to become effortless. You've effectively reprogrammed your ego at that point to work forward towards you, to work for you and towards the ego's own destruction. So yeah, absolutely. That, yeah. that seems to be one way or one attempt at least at, at not using a logical means to combat, you know, the monkey mind inside all of us. No doubt about it. And I, yeah. I, and I really like your idea that you said earlier about rushing to try something new. In other words, it may be, maybe the key is to not give your mind enough time to say no. That if you can put mm -hmm. yourself in a position where when you have a new idea, you just do it without giving yourself enough time to back out of it. Uh, that's, that's been, uh, I think that that's a good, that's a really good idea. The other one I will say too, and this one, requires more work. And I, I don't know how foolproof it is. I mean, both of us are, I, I think, skeptical of, of the power of, of the will. But one, one thing I've been trying a little bit, and so for the past uh, maybe two or three months, I've been doing the, the one meal a day uh, fasting or uh, intermittent fasting. And it's been interesting. I've, I've uh, I'm, is I'm not this for sure. religious purposes. It, it, it is not for religious purposes, and I will I will confess that I, I do not always do it 100. percent But uh, I've actually have been pretty good for, and I've been doing this since about July. This one meal a day, and one of the things. So how how, you, sure, how many hot Cheetos? How many hot <laughs> Cheetos can you fit into one meal? Just for reference. I mean, if I'm blending them up and putting them inside of you know the uh, you know hormone chili, then I can get quite a bit. No, I haven't done that since college. <laughs> that, that hasn't done that since college. Yeah, that was uh, yeah, that was a different that was a different kind of fasting, different different reasons. It was more of a, a purge, but um, <laughs> but luckily, yeah, luckily many of my eating habits have changed since I was uh, twenty two. But uh, for for the for the one meal fast, what I what I've come to realize is that I I can now sit comfortably with the feeling of being hungry. That that feeling is actually not that powerful. But what was much more powerful was the anticipation of being hungry. And I, I, I think this ties into to, to fear quite a bit because oftentimes in the year 2020, there's not, except for very specific circumstances, there's not a whole lot to be afraid of, especially I think in one place we all find this, and this goes back to your idea earlier about at, at, at the bar with the, with the pretty girl, I mean, really, you're in no real danger there, right? Like, you're not going to mm -hmm. get hurt. You're not going to get beaten up or something. It's, it, at the most, it would be embarrassing. And embarrassment is definitely one of the key things that Scott Adams talks about in Loser Think. But the idea is that embarrassment doesn't destroy you. The idea is... It's not real. It's not real because it, it, it doesn't... It, it's an illusion. Yeah, absolutely. And to, to a large part, um, you know, I, I've come to feel that same way with, with the one meal fast, that... What I, what I feel as hunger is at most a minor annoyance. It isn't controlling me. It isn't unbearable pain. It, it's just kind of an irritation. And 
with with this one meal fast, regaining that level of control over overeating um, has actually been kind of a nice way to practice this idea of not letting feelings control you, but just being able to let feelings come and go. I mean, and this is an idea. We we won't get into him today. This guy probably deserves his own episode, but a book that both of us have also read, which is Eckhart Tolle. He talks about all these things mm-hmm. and feelings that they don't have to control you. They can, they are real. They, ex- they exist. They, you can feel them, but they don't have to control you. And so, well, let me, let me ask sure. you this uh, specifically with respect to hunger. Do you think that, that different people feel hunger in different ways? Oh, I would, I like, would think so. Yeah, absolutely. Like the magnitude of the cravings uh, might differ from person to person. I would, I would think so. Yes, I would think so. And so I, I would want to be careful about using me as an example for somebody who has, you know, an eating disorder or somebody who really struggles with, with, with eating. Um, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't want to stray into that territory. Um, but it's keeping it with the idea that just in, in general, feelings by themselves don't have to be controlling. Maybe for, for, for some people, certain feelings are more powerful and, and that's perfectly fine. But um the more general comment about learning to exist with a feeling simultaneously uh, was an idea mm. that I, I was probably first exposed to by Eckhart Tolle. And that, uh, again, an idea that I probably did not value that much when I first read it, but seeing it become more applicable as I get a little older. Yeah. And it seems like hunger and entertaining these, these uh, like you said, the anticipation of meals and needing to eat, et cetera. Right. These are these are all just habits of yeah, mind, yeah. like just habit, habits that your mind have put into place over time and without much thought or consideration is kind of like how the puzzle pieces fell. And I realized through the whole COVID situation, which was one of the biggest habit breakers of all time, in my opinion, sure. especially in my own life, that I was, you know, my entire schedule changed. I didn't have to go to work every day for a period and it, just everything changed. So it... it it was good because it put me in this place where I could look back at all the habits that I had formed and all the preconceptions that I had previously and start rewiring. Like what happens if I don't drink coffee every day? Like what happens if I don't skip breakfast every day? And I started to kind of play around and mix and match new habits together. And it, it, it just astonished me to see the, 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 the glass house of habits that were formed before and how important and necessary I thought they were in my life when in reality getting rid of them helped me to improve my, my life. So I think that COVID was a good thing that happened to civilization from that perspective. Yeah. It's certainly giving people a, a chance to, you know, think outside of just kind of living their life on the rails, right. Which is something that we've all found ourselves doing. I, even in college, you find yourself doing this where you're just, Every day is kind of the same routine. Every day is kind of the, the same thing. But what are, you, what are you doing out of habit that is actually destructive? I mean, the human body is incredibly powerful at adapting to things, but that doesn't mean that it's being optimum to things. And so just because you've adapted to a bad habit doesn't mean it's not worth changing the bad habit. And uh, this is something we talked about in the first episode, the idea of eating poorly. You can eat poorly for a long time and probably not have any noticeable problems. But is it still good for you? Is it optimal? Probably not. So I, I, I will agree with you that revisiting habits and things that you take as being preconceived uh, are often hiding more than, than at first appears. And having, again, getting back to your idea of courage, of challenging some of these things, taking a risk, getting back to the A-B testing, getting back to the, to the risk taking, 
is definitely going to be something that's beneficial. And the the main, I guess, the the, the main takeaway with with this set of comments here is the idea of exposing yourself to some uncertainty in life and exposing your with with courage and exposing yourself to changes and seeing how things react and then being able to adapt to those to those circumstances. And this is an idea that if if, if I'm reading two similar ideas in, in two different books by two people that are both very smart, I'm going to take that idea very seriously. And uh, in their own ways, when, when both Nassim and when Scott Adams both advocate, you know, A-B testing or, or tinkering, et cetera, it's something that I, I really feel a need to, to take seriously. And then including applying it to habit formation and to what other habits or routines I have in my day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Um, something else that I had here in my notes was Strauss. Oh, reading. yes, yes. Can, can you explain what that is? <laughs> I will do my best. Let me, so Straussian reading and the idea of getting a Straussian take, it's, it's an idea that I've seen in, in, the, in a, a few places. The idea where I saw it first uh, was actually, I, I think, on an episode of uh, like the Hoover Institution and they were interviewing uh, some scholar and uh, it was Peter Robinson's show. And I, I want to say that was the first place where I heard the, the term Strauss. Uh, or, or Straussian. Strauss was a, uh, a philosopher or, or a historian. I, I don't know much about him in particular, but no confusion with Neil Strauss, right? We're talking about. Yes, I here. believe so. I believe so. So <laughs> the uh, the idea with with Strauss was the idea that these old ancient texts had with them two levels of reading. The first would be kind of the surface level reading that you would get just from just from kind of grasping the words on the page, but then there'd be a deeper meaning behind it that took a little more work to uncover. And there are many ideas for why Strauss or why authors use this layering of ideas. The w- one reason was just because some of these authors were writing at a time where it was dangerous to, to challenge the status quo too openly. And so they would have to hide some of their critiques in, in their works to avoid uh, persecution. The other might be just as kind of a way to challenge their students or to, to challenge their, their peers. Um, but in, in any event, the idea of the Straussian reading is this idea that when we are presented with a situation in life, we should, we should always be looking for some deeper meaning to whatever is going on. And I've been, I, I've, I've, I've been trying to do this on, on, on my own, but the person who kind of, for me, showed the importance of doing this was an author who I also mentioned on the first uh, podcast, Peter Thiel, who wrote a very important book on business called Zero to One. And in, in that book, uh, Peter Thiel comes up with this idea for a, an interview question. Then the question reads something like this. What is something you believe in that you know to be true that nobody else believes in? Really good question. I'm not going to try to answer it right here and embarrass myself. Uh, I'm not even sure I, I have a good answer for that. But it's a, that kind of question is so important because in the realm of social media and in the realm of, of thought bubbles that are so easy to find themselves in, are so easy to find ourselves in, it is so important to always be looking for uh, deeper meanings or hidden messages and whatever is being thrown our way. And so if a politician is telling you one mm-hmm. thing, what are they really trying to say? Um, that is so important because that kind of exercise can prevent us from one, taking ourselves too seriously, but two, taking, not taking our thought bubbles too seriously. And so that's, that's been an, an extremely uh, important idea that 
uh, I was kind of first exposed to by one of these uh, interviews, but um, really uh, got more into with uh, Peter Thiel and his book, Zero to One. Uh, that's kind of uh, one of the you know, things I'm trying to work on in my own life is how can I improve my, my Straussian thinking? How can I look for, for, the, for the, the Straussian reading as I, as I saw one blogger online refer to it as? How can I incorporate that into my day-to-day -day activities? Yeah, that's a good point because as I've learned more and more and gone deeper and deeper down the self-improvement and self-help rabbit holes, I'm starting to learn that prescriptive advice on things is not very effective. It, if that were the case, people would be able to read books like the four-hour work week. <laughs> right. We would all be working day. four hours a week. Right. Right. Yeah, we would all be working right. four hours a week. But that's that's clearly not right. the case. And there's a, there's this whole industry of, of just very prescriptive information that's, you know, supposed to be a quick guide to get you rich right. quick or whatever to fix this problem or to fix that problem. But in reality, like I don't, how many what's the effective rate of some of these books? Yeah. Like if a, if a book promises a certain thing, how many of those people actually get to solve that yeah. and achieve yeah. that? So it's like th there's something else there. Uh, pres giving prescriptions for problems yeah. doesn't work. Well, mainly because people don't right. take advice, but it's almost as if you have to, you have to disguise right. the advice that you're giving through the means of a, of a right. story, through, through some piece of contact content, through something. And you have to describe it indirectly. And I mean, this 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 reminds me of something like Buddhism or, or or Hinduism, where the whole text is just describing this vague, unknown concept without getting too detailed on it. You know, the it, the the power of now is the right. exact same thing. It's describing the present moment. But the thing about the present moment is that once you start thinking about the present moment, you it's lose just the gone. present right, moment. Right. So it's. There, there's a method of indirect thinking that's required to understand. Some yeah, I think that that's a that's a great connection. And I and I'll just give one more maybe for listeners who are thinking maybe wanting a one that's a little easier to grasp is this one with. Um, so there's a a famous kind of debt relief specialist. Last name is Ramsey, and basically you know he has a couple. <laughs> Yeah, Dave, Dave, Ramsey. Dave Ramsey. So he he does uh, debt relief, basically. You know, people call into his show and he gives them advice for for debt relief. You'll notice that, and he makes this point on on a on a on Ben Shapiro's podcast, and I, I thought it was great. But basically, Ben asked me, he says, you know, sometimes you give people uh, this debt relief advice, but it's not the most efficient. That you know, if they're not paying off their most expensive debt first, or if they're not doing it in the right proportion, they'll end up owing more money. And Dave goes. Uh, the people that call into my show, if their problem was accounting, they wouldn't be in debt. They're not in debt because they don't know how to calculate their debt. They're in debt because they have a bad habit of spending that they need, that they, they need to break. And so the, the tips that Dave gives them is a way to slowly escape this debt pile that they're in. Even though it may not be the most efficient, that isn't the point because that isn't the problem. They're not in debt because of you know, their, their mm -hmm. uh, Excel spreadsheet's broken. They're in debt because they have the wrong values. And so what Dave explained this, and it all kind of made sense to me, was he was attacking the psychological aspect of why people are in debt, not the yeah. accounting reason of why people are in debt. Now, to be sure, there are people who are, of course, in debt because of real accounting problems, you know, a, a medical bill or a car accident. That's all fine. But when somebody calls into the show and says, oh, well, I bought a Ferrari, even though I can't afford it, their problem wasn't, you know, that they had a, a bad uh, spreadsheet. Their problem was that they had a bad habit and that they were valuing the wrong things. 
And so that that's maybe not quite Straussian, but kind of there. It's why would Dave Ramsey be effective? Well, because the problem actually isn't debt. It's something else that that is a symptom of. And so looking, looking for those things in our life, looking for, you know, whether it's the root cause or an alternative explanation, whatever it may be, the uh, deeper meaning, all of that is a, a, an important habit to have, especially given that all of us are living in a day and age where we are always being bombarded by tons and tons and tons of information. And um, it can definitely be overwhelming. Yeah. And like guys like Dave Ramsey, I think he's the one I, I need to fact check on this, but I think he's the one that kind of coined that that visual of coming on stage and taking out a giant pair of scissors and cutting up credit cards. Oh, maybe, maybe. I, I, I haven't seen him doing that, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, something like that, that that acts like, sure, credit can be an incredibly right. useful tool in a lot of financial situations. Like it can help you build wealth sure. as opposed to lose it. But for his target audience, it's, it's like you said, breaking that habit of being in debt is the problem. And he he's refined his visual persuasion in a way to like, when I think of him, at least that's the first sure. thing that comes to mind is just picture him with those big scissors, cutting right. up those credit cards. And that's, that's like, that's a form of the Straussian reading. It, it sounds like yeah that it's kind of a non-direct non-prescriptive just demonstration of what it, exactly the, it, it's easy to go get another credit card. So obviously what's happening on stage is more than just them cutting a piece of plastic in half. That's, that's not the reading. Yeah. The reading is, these people are freeing themselves from this thing that has controlled them. I mean, the people that have a hard time with money, I mean, it's devastating. And so, you know, the simple surface reading would be, well, you know, they can go buy another credit card. That's not a real problem. You know, this isn't a real, a real solution. It isn't a solution to the problem you think they have, but it is a solution to the problem they actually have. And that makes it powerful. And so, and, and, and this, I, I think this, and you mentioned this too, but it, it ties back into persuasion and it ties into the idea that humans are more complicated than just complex robots. We, we are not machines in the simple sense. We are, you know, the, the human brain is this experiment uh, generating device that's full of you know, in, in, imprecision. I, I won't say errors, I'll say imprecision, that if we understand that can be, to, can be a huge benefit to us. You know, human thinking is anti-fragile because you really never know where one thought will lead. It can go anywhere. And so that, that's the benefit of having a, a brain like a human being. But we have to understand the limitations. And we, we can't conceive of the brain as being this logic device when, in fact, it, it is not a logic device. So we don't want to map the wrong, um, the, the wrong programming to the brain and then be mad when we get bad results. We want to understand the right programming for the brain, a mixture of emotion, a mixture of reason, a, a mixture of persuasion. And then we can reap the rewards. So I've been thinking of another factor. Like you said, you need the right combination of all those things. But I've been wondering if, there, if there's another one involved too. And this was an idea that came to me as I was watching the Kanye West interview on Joe Rogan yesterday. So and for, I don't know if anyone's for, watched For people it. who don't know, who is Kanye West? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good question, because Kanye made it to number one in the music industry, you know, despite people telling him not to. Uh, he said that he has a PhD in art education or something, which I, I didn't know before listening to the interview, and I don't know if that's true, but he was successful in the art community. He became a very successful musician. He later became a, a successful designer with his fashion brands, and um, 
essentially everything he touches seems seems right. to turn to gold and he's now worth five billion dollars and one of the richest people in the u.s so watching this the thing that stuck with me the most was well a he couldn't really stay on ta- on task on one particular subject when asked questions he would go all over the place he, he would describe it as his mind's symphony mm. is what he would call it but the second thing was his newfound obsession with religion and I really watched this interview with a critical eye, keeping in the back of my mind, how, how is religion contributing to his success? Why right. is he so obsessed with this? If he's such a successful guy and re- religion is at the forefront of his mind, what, what, what's going on there? And he operates from the frame that God is constantly inspiring him and that his role is simply to lay out all the options. And he puts his taste on things to drive decisions. So in other words, like he was asked a question on foreign policy. Um, if he were to become president by J- Rogan. And his response was that he would get all the experts in the right place. He would get all the intelligence in front of him. And then once he has all the facts and everything laid out in front of him, he says that his skill, one of the skills from his skill stack is taking all that information and making the right decision. And again, this kind of goes back to, to the prescriptive nature of self-help content and how ineffective it is because there is a deeper truth out there that can't be comprehended by words and reason. And for Kanye, I think he's using the word God as a scapegoat or a catch-all for this mysterious right. inner truth, sure, sure. quote unquote, that's out there. And through religion, it now gives him this power, this superpower to weave in new ideas and ambiguity into his life. So in other words, maybe having a disbelief in the unknown is less effective than having a belief. Yeah because it allows you to weave it. And then you look at some of these examples, like some of these geniuses from time, uh, Steve Jobs, he was a Zen Buddhism. Walt Disney was a devout Christian. Uh, Nikolai Tesla, he, he had a quote when asked if he believed in God, he said, in my heart, I'm deeply religious, though not in the orthodox sense of the word. Sense of the word. Um, you look at Elon Musk, like he is a preacher of the right. simulation, you know, right, for right. lack of better terms. Albert Einstein even said, science without religion is lame. Religious without science is blind. So I think having a spiritual and religious belief frees you of the burden um, with having all the answers yourself. You you don't need to have all the answers yourself. Not everything needs to be definable. Not everything has to be definable under that paradigm. And it makes you more receptive to divine inspiration. And that's a tool that is extremely powerful and cannot exist in a purely logical world. Yeah. And I, and I, and that ties in nicely with an idea in Nassim Taleb's book, which is the idea of what does it really mean to be a skeptic that if you, if you take somebody who claims to be a skeptic, but then, you know, entertains no skepticism about the idea of whether or not God exists, then they're not really a skeptic. They're just an atheist or something. They're just a, 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 a strong atheist as, as the phrase would be. I, I totally agree that in, in this, for, for me, the, the major takeaway so far from anti-fragility is the idea of being more comfortable without having answers and the idea without being able to understand and mm-hmm. predict the future and being comfortable with ambiguities and being comfortable without giving, uh, being comfortable without having precision. To, to me, that is the the one of the major takeaways of really all of Nassim's work when he talks about, you know, these the impact of these extreme events. 
And I, I, I think that ties in really well with some of the quotes that you were just saying, is this idea of keeping an open mind means not feeling the need to give definitive answers on things, because oftentimes definitive answers turn out to be completely wrong. And to me, it's not clear how useful they are if they end up being completely wrong. You want to be open-minded to things and you want to expose yourself to whether it's different beliefs or, or different uh, explanations. What matters more, I think, at the end of the day for most things is the result. Uh, you know, one of the ideas in, in uh, the book I'm reading now from Nassim is the idea that people can arrive at the wrong answer for totally wrong reasons. This happens all the time. You know, bakers mm -hmm. and people who work in uh, or, or, or maybe even uh, chefs don't have to understand anything about chemistry to make good tasting food. They may have completely terrible ideas about chemistry. You know, they may have no idea what they're doing. But just through art of practice and through art of, of, of repetition and from learning from whether it's an apprenticeship or, or from some kind of book of secrets, whatever it is, they can still arrive at the right result, even though they have no idea how they got there. And so as I, as I kind of see myself as more or less kind of blindly stumbling through a hall, you know, trying to get to the, to the other side, and maybe I can see a little bit and maybe some areas of the hall I can see better than the other but ultimately, I have no predictive abilities. I don't know anything about the future. And all I have is what's, what's right in front of me. And as I, as I get older, I, I feel less and less a need to have definitive answers or even definitive opinions on what would be called life's big questions. To me, those questions are more valuable as questions than they are at a tool for arriving at an answer. Yeah, it, it's like Kanye. It's like what Kanye says or what, what he does about how he trusts his faculty of approximation with the yeah. limited information he has. Like, he understands that there's massive right. vagueness and everything, but he has confidence that his own mind, his own, add, by adding his own taste to things, that's, that's, that's what, where the success comes yeah. from, is it comes from just having that confidence in yourself over other people. And in especially, and this is something that we hear Scott talk about all the time, and Nassim as well, is the idea that people who are experts – uh, sometimes dramatically underestimate ambiguity or, or underestimate error in what they're working on. And that's just because they have this expertise bias. They think that because they're experts, they know everything about whatever it is they're working on, even though that probably is not the case. We for sure saw that in the financial industry in 2008, people underestimated these, these risky uh, rare events. And sure enough, the whole thing blew up. <laughs> and so, I mean, there's there's, there's always reasons yeah. to be skeptical of experts. And this doesn't have to lead to, you know, not, listen, not ever listening to experts, but it means there's always room for uh, ambiguity and there's always room for skepticism and for questioning. And I, I think for, for people, as long as they're, they're committed to reaching the, the truth, then really every question is worth asking and, and every, every option is worth keeping open for as long as possible. The idea of you know, keeping your options open keeps that situation more valuable and keeping them open for as long as you can, can conserves that value for that decision for as long as possible. I wish I could go through like Yahoo finance or, you know, seeking right. alpha or some of these other zero, zero hedge, sure. some of these other like investing sites and just look at all the articles and like plot all of them. Like what, which ones are right versus which ones are wrong. Like, I wonder right. where that distribution would fall. You know, like you have one site saying like, oh, don't don't invest in Apple stock because right. it's going to crash. And you have other people who say, oh, definitely do invest. And it's like the two world theory or the two movie theory. Like there's two different movies happening at the exact same time. And we don't know which one's going to happen. And it's just it, it blows me away 
how people can just read through these and absorb this information and like get their stock advice from this. When, like you said, a, a single black swan event can come through and just change yeah. the entire playing field. Like you, you, if you want to be successful, you need more diversification than, than totally. operating. In yeah, that you're fashion. absolutely right. And, and that, again, just bringing you back to the idea of anti-fragility, uh, a system that, that benefits from the chaos, a system that, that benefits from the unexpected. Um, you know, that's what we should be looking for because ultimately the unexpected has a way of happening. And when it does, if you're in a system that benefits from that change, then you're on the winning side. And if you're on a system that loses, sometimes dramatically so, you know, for anybody that uh, was was hurt by the, the real estate market, which is, I mean, almost everybody, probably everybody that, that was hurt by that, um, I mean, that, that just shows you, and, and remember, that was a system built by experts, built by people that had, you know, all these fancy finance degrees, all these fancy PhDs, and these people that would blow you away at a math tournament and they could do all these fancy integrals in their head and, you know, whatever. These people were, were super geniuses, and yet it still happened. Because why? Because yep. there are things in life that are, that are, for all meaningful purposes, they're impossible to predict. And because they're unex- because they're unexpected, they sneak up on us. And when they do, they can have they can cause these horrible catastrophes. So I I I, I mean I, I agree with that. It would be fun to look at and see you know who predicts well over you know whatever time frame. But unfortunately, over a long enough time frame, I bet none of them do a very good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, look, look at the right. weather predictions right. for the next week. Let's see. Let's see how so, accurate those are. So yeah, I, it's again, it's it, focus rather than focusing on the future and on prediction. Don't do that. Don't try to predict. Instead, focus on the system. Focus on things that you have control over in the present, and build something that that is at least robust. But if possible, look for ways in which you can benefit from the unexpected rather than being punished by it. Yeah, yeah, and I, that reminds me. That, Scott Adams always talks about how you you can you can gauge or you can measure the effectiveness of your model of the world based right, on how right. well it predicts. And in other words, if you are able to make some of these predictions and see them come true, that means you have a pretty accurate model of the world. But if you're constantly predicting things and constantly right. finding yourself disappointed right. that that's not what happens, maybe yes, you should start I, rethinking I, I your model. People like, like, well, okay, if you're listening and you're not a forecaster for the stock market or you're not a forecaster for the, for the weather channel and, you know, how could you apply this? Well, if you're somebody who wants to be more successful in social settings and every time you go into a social setting and you don't like the outcome, ask yourself, honestly, are you doing anything different from one time to the next? Have you actually changed anything about how you're yeah. operating? And I'm not even talking about, you know, picking up growth and talking. It could be anything. If you, if you want to have more friends, ask yourself, are you, what are you actually doing to make that happen? And th- th- this gets into the idea of, of converting knowledge into practice. If you're just reading books and reading articles, you're not doing anything different. It, it, honestly, it is better for you to not even read it because you're wasting time and maybe money. So you have to put it into practice. What are you actually doing to change the outcome? And if, rather than just, you know, sitting around and saying, well, you know, I tried, you know, I, it, that doesn't work for me. Well, how do you know? <laughs> what are you doing different? Uh, and, yeah, I'm not, I'm not right, that type of right. person. <laughs> and it's hard. I mean, I, again, I make fun of myself. How many years of my life did I complain about, oh, I feel sick when I eat. I, you know, I, I'm this or that. No, but see, we eat like shit and then you feel bad. Shocking. 
shocking how that happens. You know, I mean, yeah, scrape me off the floor. Scra- I mean, I, you know, who floor. would have thought? You know, it, anybody once you look at it, and then the effort of changing it, of course, is reward is is a rewarding you in dividends because you don't feel bad all the time. But there there is always an inertia to change. But if if there is something in your life that you do not like that you are not working to change, then what right do you have to complain? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you either have to just accept it or accept, try right. to accept it. eating, having hot Cheetos and energy drinks and feeling bad all day. Accept that, or yeah, Ex- accept exactly. the purge, or accept the, the don't purge, accept the purge, or eat more fiber. Those are your choices. Yeah, have you ever have you been able to find uh, the happy medium? I have is uh, none. <laughs> yeah, limon. Limon. No, I. Um, <laughs> the, honestly, the 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 happy medium has just been to eat. Uh, other chips. I mean, that, that sounds kind of lame, you know, but uh, basically I, I, I still eat junk food from time to time, but, you know, I found that if I just avoid certain foods, it ends up not being that big of a deal. And, you know, having it in the weekend for a kind of a reward is always kind of nice. And, you know, it's just a moderation and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. yes, I, I, I have not had Pentagon Cheetos in uh, three or four months. This is a uh, so if anybody's listening, wanting to know how long it's been since I've had something hot Cheetos, it's been about four months. <laughs> we might need a, yeah, a detox yeah. guide no, for that. Was, on that yeah, that was how to funnel. make that happen. That was good. But I, I think I think that's yeah, a wrap. sure. So well, so let's just re recap some of the things that we talked about today, and, and uh, of course, for anybody who was hearing these ideas and and thinking to themselves. You know, they're really just scratching the surface of these things. Uh, of course, I mean, these these books, these ideas are, are worth episodes in and of themselves. And I'm sure as time goes on, we will do that. You know, once I finish Anti-Fragility, I would love to just spend a whole podcast just on that book. We would love to spend a whole podcast just talking about loser, think about persuasion. But today's episode, and, uh, and of course, Kanye, uh, today's episode was about explaining a, a, a project that Joe and I are involved with, with this podcast, which is this idea of not only learning new information, but trying to connect it to other books or other ideas. And then most importantly, once we have those connections, putting it into practice. And so today's podcast was a little bit about that from, a, from an upper level. And then with some discussion on Scott Adams with Robert Cialdini and with Nassim Taleb, all authors worth checking out and uh, reading all of their works. So for Roses and Rhetoric, I'm Jimmy Hackett. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to my co-host, Joseph Stanford. And uh, be sure to check out his short story on our website, rosesandrhetoric.com. And if you haven't listened to our past two episodes, do so also on our website. No, just leave it in. Let's just do it raw. What if we were doing a live podcast right now? Can you imagine how awful that would be? Fuck it. We're doing it live. (laughs) Feels like we're doing it live.